is crazy early. The priority of prayer for knowing and doing the will of God. You know, if you go into pretty much any any Christian bookstore, you will find all kinds of books about the health of the church. And why is the church in North America, the Western church in general, why is it languishing? Why does it seem anemic? Why does it seem powerless? Authors have all kinds of answers for that. My personal conviction is that the the basic cause of powerlessness in the church, the reason we're not relevant in culture, the reason we're not convincingly speaking to culture, is this issue, is that we are, we're not meeting with God. We're not taking time to meet with God. So uh, we'll unpack it as we go through, but let's go ahead and read the text if we can. Uh, Mark chapter 1, I'm going to begin in verse 32 to give you some context. It says, when evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. Now this is Jesus in Simon Peter's home. They began bringing him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. So the context here is that Jesus was healing, he was casting out demons, and he was growing in popularity. The crowds were starting to gather, they were coming to him, they were needing, because people are hurting, people need healing, people need need some demons cast out. And then it says, so, so, and Mind you, it said after the sun had set. So this is in the evening. All these people are coming to Jesus. So probably he's doing ministry late into the night. And then it says in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. So the big idea is that only by consistent time alone with God can believers know and do the will of God. I think the the basic source of the church's weakness in our culture is that people, I hear people all the time say, I don't know what God's will is for my life. They've been a believer, for, and these are people who've been a believer for a long time, but I don't know what it is that God wants me to do. Or, and people may know that God may put his finger on something for somebody and tell them what it is he wants them to do, but they don't do what God wants them to do. We have all these aspirational values about what we should do as a church or as individual Christians, but we don't actually. And so it's only by consistent time alone with God that believers can know and do the will of God. A disciplined devotional life is the foundation for all Christian growth and effective ministry. And Jesus is our model. And he gives us a model here. I feel like I need to defend the word disciplined a little bit because it's so unpopular in our culture. When people hear the word discipline, they automatically think legalism, heavy yoke, i got to fit into somebody else's mold. So a couple of, I, I, I didn't put these in the slide, but a couple of, ideas I want to share with you. First is that God delights in discipline. It says in 2 Timothy 1.7 that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but he's given us a spirit of power, love, and discipline. 
So God has put his Holy Spirit in us to produce discipline. And it, uh, 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy 4, 7 says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Think about that statement. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. He's saying, discipline yourself in order to be like God. So if the goal of your life is to be transformed into the image of Christ, then the way to get there is by disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness. And also it means that if you're disciplining yourself to be like God, it means that God is what? Disciplined. Have you ever thought about that? God, God is completely free, but God is completely self-controlled. So we have no ability to make God fall in love with us. You know God doesn't show his affection towards you, his love towards you, because you're so awesome. Because, because you're so holy. He shows his affection to you because you could be completely undeserving, completely sinful. God chose to set his affection on you, the book of Deuteronomy says. He chose to set his affection. So his love towards you is, is a disciplined, self-controlled love. It's not you didn't woo him, you didn't cause him. On the other hand, God never loses his temper. So God's wrath is self-controlled. When God wiped the world out with a flood, he hadn't lost his temper and just gone off the deep end and decided to kill everybody. In self-controlled, righteous anger, he gave the world exactly what it deserved. And he waited a long time in mercy to do it. So, so God delights in discipline. Discipline is part of God's character, and he wants to see that cultivated in us. Psalm 103 says that God knows our frame. He's mindful that we're but dust. And so I, I kind of, as we begin, I want to be really straight, straight up, straightforward with you that, that discipline is the path to holiness. And it's not a heavy yoke. It's actually the way to freedom. You know that the most undisciplined people lead the most uh, ruinous lives. They ruin their own lives and they ruin the lives of people around them because they can't control themselves. The more self-control you have, the more ability you have to direct your own life and to do what it is that God wants you to do. The more ability you have to fulfill your purpose in life, fulfill what God has for you. So discipline is a good thing. God delights in it. It reflects his character. And the more you have, the more fruitful you can be for God. And so Jesus is our model. And we see in Mark one thirty-five. Well, time alone with God was a priority for Jesus. Now, how do we know that it was a priority for Jesus? One, in, in the parallel passage to this in Luke 5.17, it tells us explicitly that Jesus regularly went away in the wilderness by himself to pray. And then there are three things in this passage, Mark 1.35, that tells us that, that prayer, time alone with God, was a priority for the Lord Jesus. He had a specific time. He had a specific place, and he had a specific purpose. And we're going to hit those one by one. So first he had a specific time. It says, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up. Those are powerful words. Jesus got up. Because that's the, that's the hardest part about getting alone with God in the morning, right? Especially when it's cold. In the wintertime is the hardest time for me. I want to stay in bed. In the morning, Jesus got up. This is an interesting uh, phrase, too, 
So that's how you say crazy early in Greek. <laughs> this first word, proi, means, really means early in the morning by itself. First thing in the morning. And then these other two words, inoko leon, it means in the night exceedingly. Leon means greatly or exceedingly. And so even in Greek, it's a really strange way of saying it. It's like, and it probably reflects Peter's, you know, the Gospel of Mark is based on Peter's recollections. Mark was a secretary for Peter in a way. So he probably did the writing, but this is based on Peter's memory. And so Peter, his memory of Jesus getting up was, man, it was crazy early. It was pitch black. I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. But Jesus got up and he went outside. So he says it's crazy early. I actually Googled what time the sun comes up in Jerusalem. Uh, it ranges from in the summer, it comes up about 5.30. In the winter, it comes up about 6.30. So I'm not sure exactly what time of year this was. But, but Jesus was up, not in the twilight, but while it was in the night exceedingly. When it was very, very dark, he was up. Why would anybody get up that early? Because it was a priority. And so I want to talk about priorities. Uh, I looked up the definition of priority in, on the Merriam-Webster, and it says something meriting attention before competing alternatives. Something that merits attention before competing alternatives. My translation of that is a, something that's worth doing before anything else. So priorities are things that you put first in your daily life. What are some things that we do every day? Eat every day? Shower every day? That's good. I like that. You go to work every day, right? You probably check your Facebook every day. You probably check your email every day. If you find out what comes first in your life, you will find your priorities. But priorities are not the same as values. And there are, there are statistics that kind of bear this out. Barna and other people have done studies where they'll ask Christians, do you value time with God? And people say, oh, yeah, sure, I value time with God. And they say, do you actually spend time with God? And they say, well, no, I don't. So a value and a priority is not the same thing, right? Because you, you value, most of us value eating, right? We think it's a good thing to do, and it's a priority. We make sure that we do it every day. Most of us will go out of our way to make sure that it gets done, right? So it's a value, and it's a priority. For some of us, work is not a value. We don't really like it. I'd just as soon not go to work. But work is still a priority. Most of us actually still go to work. And why do we do that? Because eating is a high priority, right? And so, again, some of us would say that spending time with God is a priority when what we really mean is that it's a value. We value it, but we don't really prioritize it. There are other things that get prioritized ahead of it. And so... If you're not actually doing it, it's not a priority. And I don't say that to be mean. I'm just, we got to be real with ourselves if, we, if we're going to see where we need to grow. So for Jesus, time with God was not simply a value. It was a priority. He actually did it. And in this particular context, when all the crowds are seeking him, he did it when it was hard. He did what he had to do to get it done. I have a question for you. What alternatives compete for your attention? What are the things in your life that compete for your attention? If you're a preacher, it's pro it might be sermon prep. That's a, a great uh, challenge to me to prioritize devotional time with God above sermon prep. Because Bible study 
And devotional is not the same thing as much as I would like it to be. It's not. You can get so busy serving God that you can lose your heart for God by neglecting personal time with God. And that's messed up. But it's true. So, what about sleep? You may have to give up sleep in the morning in order to prioritize time with God. Or, on the other hand, if you want to prioritize, if, if sleep is a higher priority, you may need to do, uh, do without some late-night fellowship. I think uh, Adam Wolsfeld told me one time, the, a good morning starts the night before. Yeah. So, the, if you have a hard time getting up in the morning, maybe what you need to do is go to bed earlier and give up some late-night fellowship. So Jesus made time with God a priority by getting up early to meet with God. And there's nothing, there's nothing magical or more spiritual about the early mornings of the hours. I, don't, I do not want to give that impression that like people who get up early in the morning are more spiritual than people who don't. What I am saying is that Jesus, out of his desire to be connected with his heavenly Father, did whatever he had to do to make sure that that happened. And so that's, we see it evidence in his life that it was a real priority for him. Because he was willing to stay up. He stayed up late doing ministry. And he knew that if he waited until the sun came up the next morning, he would not have another opportunity. And so he did what he had to do. And he got up early to spend time with God. That's what it looks like for it to be a priority. So another practical reason that uh, spending time with God in the morning or at the beginning of your day, let's, instead of the morning, let's just say the beginning of your day, is that we need divine empowerment and the Spirit's filling for the day, right? I had a spiritual life professor in college that said, I don't do much sinning in my sleep. And this has been one of the, as simple as it is, it's one of the most convincing arguments to me that people should spend time with God at the beginning of their day. Because you may, it may be true that you may be, you may feel more fresh in the evenings. Your mind, after you've had four cups of coffee at night, your mind may be more active and ready to, to dig into the Word of God, but you've already spent your day, and you don't need God's power to help you sleep through the night, necessarily. Well, sometimes we do, don't we? But, right. uh, but again, we don't, we don't do much sinning in our sleep. We need God's power and divine enablement. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not be drunk with wine, but be Filled with spirit. You need to be filled with God's spirit. You need to yield yourself to the spirit of God and seek his power to do his will daily. At the end of the day, it's too late to find out what God's will for today was, right? So secondly, Jesus made time with God a priority by having a specific place. Jesus left the house and he went away to a secluded place. Now, the word that's translated secluded here, your translation, if you're using the King James, it may say lonely. What does the ESV say? Desolate. Desolate place. So the, the word here is the word for desert but it, or wilderness, but it doesn't mean like an uncultivated place. It means just a place without people. So Jesus left the house, and he went away to a place of solitude because, again, He's leaving because of the press of the crowd, because he knows people are going to be searching for him. So he wants to be where people are not. And so Jesus seeks solitude. He understands that solitude is essential to spending personal time with God. Gene Fleming writes, 
We live in a noisy, busy world. Silence and solitude are not 20th century words. We have become people with an aversion to quiet and an uneasiness with being alone. And Donald Whitney goes a step further, and he says he thinks that a lot of people in our culture have noise addiction, that they can't stand silence. So when you get in your car, you have to have the radio on. And when you walk into an empty room, you turn the TV on just so that there will be some noise. I know some of the, some of the parents with little kids are saying, I wish I had that problem. I wish I had that. <laughs> got, got no addiction to noise at my house. Um, and we even become, many of us become dependent on noise in order to have a quiet time. So there's this idea that I can't have a quiet time unless I have some worship music playing in the background. Right? Not, nothing wrong with playing worship music in the background. But do you have to have it? Jesus didn't have it. He went out to a secluded place in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of night. Wasn't He probably didn't take candles and a match with him to read his Bible, right? He didn't have, they didn't have a Bible. He would have had scrolls <laughs> under his arm going out, in the, going out in the wilderness, reading by land. He didn't have, what the Bible that he had was what he'd memorized in his mind. And the songs that he sang were the Psalms from the Hebrew Psalter that he had memorized. It all, so he didn't listen to music. He made music to God. He meditated on the word of God that he had treasured in his heart, right? Donald Whitney says, one of the costs of technological advancement is a greater temptation to avoid quietness. While we've broadened our intake of news and information of all kinds, these advantages may come at the expense of our spiritual depth if we do not practice silence and solitude. Has the blessing of technology left us shallow? If I were going to describe the overarching problem of American Christianity, that would be what I would label it, shallowness. We just have no, we just have no depth. Primarily we have no depth because we of this lack of connecting with God in the secret place. And third, Jesus went uh, out into the wilderness to meet with God. He prioritized time with God by having a specific purpose says that he went out there to pray. But what is prayer? And I know this is going to seem obvious at the risk of insulting your intelligence. Prayer is communication with God. Okay, but I'll tell you why, why we still need to talk about this. Because I was having dinner with a friend uh, uh, earlier this week. And, uh, and he said, I was telling him about this sermon, and he said, do you think maybe instead of saying communication with God, you should say communion with God? Because communication sounds like just talking. And I said, exactly. That's the problem. Is that in our culture, when we think about communicating, the only side, we just think about talking. And so prayer is communication, but it is not just talking. In our therapeutic culture, we fall into this rut of thinking that prayer is just about venting to God. It's just about telling God how I feel and, and, and praying for God to help me feel better. And that's not untrue. Like, we should share everything with God. I mean, that's one of the, the great blessings of relationship with God is that when everyone else deserts you, the presence of God is there for you to share your heart with. But communication is a two-way process. And this is why my, my friend was suggesting communion instead of communication but communi- because we, our culture has forgotten that communication is two-way. And so it's not just that we pour our heart out to God like he's some kind of pro bono therapist 
But we open ourselves to hear from God. We open up our lives to be changed by God. So prayer is communication with God that produces transformation in us. And so if you don't get to hearing from God, you haven't communicated with God. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So transformation is the purpose of prayer. We're seeking God's, God's will for your life in general is to be conformed to the image of his son. And you can only do that by opening yourself up to God in prayer. Prayer is like a time exposure to God. This is Kent Hughes. Prayer is like a time exposure to God. Our souls function like photographic plates. And Christ's shining image is the light. The more we expose our lives to the white-hot sun of his righteous life, the more his image will be burned into our character. Kent Hughes in his book, Disciplines of a Godly Man. So we open ourselves up to Christ's righteousness, and we allow him to shine in. This is a conscious vulnerability on our part. Jesus, when he was praying alone in a deserted area outside of town with no Bible, no worship music, the weather is probably a little chilly. Jesus probably sang a few psalms, meditated on scripture that he had memorized. But I think that a good part of his prayer would have been processing through what he was experiencing. So he was pouring out his heart to God. It might have gone something like this. Father, the crowds are really responding to what you're doing through me. All these miracles are taking place, and the crowds are really gaining momentum. But you know what? Father, I don't think they really see me for who I am. I think that, they, I think that they're after the miracles and not the kingdom. And I think as Jesus poured out his heart, he opened himself up to hear from God, and he heard from God. And he opened himself not just to listen, but to obey. Uh, Richard Foster says, to pray is to change. Prayer is the central avenue that God uses to transform us. If we are unwilling to change, we will abandon prayer as a noticeable characteristic in our lives. So frankly, some of us are prayerless because we're unwilling to change. We've gotten comfortable with where we are. I mean, you may be genuinely a believer. You love God, but you're just comfortable. And you've got, kind of got things where you want them, and you don't really want things to change. And so you might your, your prayer with God might be limited to just, thanks God, thanks God, thanks God. Let's pray before we eat. Let's pray when we gather together. But your, your life of devotion, of pressing in, opening yourself to really hear what it is that God wants his will for your life personally, it's okay, God. I got this. Got everything just like I like it. And if that's you, as long as you're in that place, you will never fulfill God's will for your life. You may have some nice kids. You may have a nice house. You may have a nice retirement account. But you will never fulfill what God has for your life. So Jesus poured his heart out to God. He opened himself to hear from God. And then this is kind of the the coolest part of the whole thing is that when the sun comes up, these crowds of people that Jesus had been ministering to, they come to Simon Peter's house where they were the night before, and it's a growing crowd, an even bigger crowd, people with more needs. And Simon Peter and the disciples, they're, they're kind of like, he's not here. 
So we got to go find him. So Simon Peter and the other disciples, they go outside of town to try to find Jesus. They find him, and Peter says, everyone is looking for you. Jesus, what are you doing out here? Don't you know that there are people in town, and they have needs, and they're calling your name, man. They're after you. They want to see Jesus. I think I saw somebody with a T-shirt. So, and Jesus makes this amazing response, right? He, He says, let us go somewhere else and preach. Let us go somewhere else and preach the gospel because that is why I came. And so Peter is pointing this direction back into town. All right, Jesus, whatever. Glad you had a good quiet time, man. Come on, we got to get back to work. You got people to see, people to heal, a revolution to organize, right? Because the disciples, their expectation of the Messiah was that he would be this revolutionary warrior that would overthrow Roman oppression. And so Peter and his guys, they loved the fact that there was a growing crowd. They loved that Jesus was growing in popularity, that he was fulfilling these signs, that he was the true Messiah. So they were, they were psyched about it. Let's get back in here and get to work. But Jesus says, that ain't, that's not why I came. And you know, if Jesus had asked the crowds what his agenda ought to be, you know, the crowds would have said, oh, the kingdom of God? Yeah, right on. I love the kingdom of God. But you know what? Could you? I got this pain right here in my lower back. And, you know, my, do you do cosmetics? My, my, my third cousin on my mother's side, she's got this mole on her chin. It's just really caused her a lot of problems. And anyway, so it just, just the crowds were petty and fickle. And Jesus knew it. He saw right through them. And so he didn't go to the crowds to find out what God's will was for him. And he didn't go to his disciples to find out what God's will was for him. He went to God. And he opened himself up honestly to hear from God. And so when he finally was confronted with Peter and the crowds, he was prepared. He had a backbone to say, I know the crowds are calling my name. I know that there are people who need to be healed. But God sent me to proclaim the good news of forgiveness, reconciliation with God in Christ. Right? So he said, this is why I came. What about you and me? Where are we discovering God, our, the agenda for our life? Are we allowing culture to tell us what our agenda is? Are we allowing uh, our children to tell us? what our agenda ought to be? Are we allowing our boss or employer to tell us? And this goes back to the disciplined versus undisciplined. If you don't live a disciplined life in seeking God, you are going to be driven by the voices that surround you. And you're going to be like Ephesians 4 says, you're going to be tossed on the waves, right? And so you have to get your marching orders from God and from God alone, and that takes a discipline, making spending time with God a priority. So prioritizing personal time with God resulted in Jesus knowing and doing the will of God. So if you're, if you're a believer and you're in this place where you're saying, you know, I, I don't know that I know what God's will for my life is, I would ask, are you consistently, regularly pressing into God? Uh, in in quiet time, in times of prayer, opening yourself to him. If you feel like you know what the will of God is, but you don't have the power to do what God's will is, I would ask you the same question. Are you consistently, regularly pressing in to find God?
Okay, i got to wrap it up. Donald Whitney says, Without exception, the men and women I have known who make the most rapid, consistent, and evident growth in Christ-likeness have been those who develop a daily time of being alone with God. And I, w- I would agree with that. That's, that's been my experience as well. So by way of application, you need to choose a time. Crazy early. Okay, so crazy early is kind of, kind of a metaphor for... I, I, I strongly, strongly urge you to make spending time with God a part of the, the first part of your day. So crazy early for you, crazy early for me is 5 a.m. Crazy early, crazy early for somebody else. If you go to work at 11 o'clock in the morning, then crazy early might be 8 o'clock. I don't know. Uh, I know we've got some guys here who, who go to work at like 3 a.m. in the morning. Uh, Daniel, right, goes to work at 3 in the morning. So crazy early for Daniel, that's crazy, uh, right? Again, I can't, I can't be the Holy Spirit for anybody. I just know that if we're really going to experience God's will in our life, we've got to make it a priority. We've got to press in and be connecting with God. And, and, and we've got to be radical and a little ruthless with making sure that we carve out that time. And so that means... Saying no to some people like Jesus had to do. Look people in the eye and say, I got, I got to do the will of God right now. So choose a time. Crazy early. Choose a place. Secluded. This is, this is one of the hardest things. I know people with little kids, once your kids get up, there's no seclusion ever again. No quiet. And so, so this is a good case. If, you know, if, you, if you've got kids, you've got a regular daytime job, early morning. I can't imagine why early morning is not the best fit for you. And then third, seek God in prayer with purpose, expectancy, and openness to change. And I do want to just say a few words about the legalism issue. A lot of times the reason that we think about disciplines as legalism or a heavy yoke is because we're just doing it to check off the box. Or we're just doing it to be thought of as a spiritual purpose. Do you think Jesus got up in the black of night and went out into the middle of nowhere in the cold to pray, to be thought of as a spiritual person? I don't think so. I think that's a little, little too extreme. And so Jesus was willing to do it because he was approaching God with an expectation that he would hear from God. So one of the reasons that we're often not motivated to pray is that we have no expectation that we will hear from God. We have no expectation that we'll really encounter God. So you have to do this with purpose, with expectancy that you'll hear from God, and with an openness to change, with the heart of the psalmist in 139 that says, Search me, O God, and know me. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way of life. We have to open our hearts and, and offer our hearts to God and say, God, will you show me what needs to change? Will you show me what you want from me today? And I promise you that he will reveal himself to you. That's what he does. He's a revealing God. How he does that is a whole nother sermon. Um, about, but in a nutshell, he does it through the Holy Spirit. God has put His Holy Spirit in you, and the Holy Spirit enlivens the Word of God to speak through you, so that words that were dead on the page one day are suddenly alive and full of life, and calling you to action. And He talks to us through the Holy Spirit through promptings and nudgings of the Holy Spirit when He says, "You just feel compelled." And God put something on your heart. If you're any of the people that we've described where maybe you haven't 
been having consistent time with God and you want to come back and begin that, um, if you just want somebody to pray for you, if you want to pray for God's power in your life to accomplish that, we want to pray for you. If there's anyone struggling with legalism, if you're feeling any condemnation, what I began to say at the beginning of the sermon, I need to finish now. In Psalm 103, it says, He himself is mindful of our frame. He's mindful that we're but dust. So you remember when God created Adam, he took this dirt and he formed him. And he's saying, God knows you're made out of dirt. And what can you really expect from dirt? Right? So he's merciful and he's compassionate. He knows that we're frail and fragile and weak creatures. And so his, his, his mercies are new every morning. His compassion towards you is great. So there's no reason to feel condemnation. But if that's you, if you're weighed down with condemnation, if you've not been meeting with God and you're just struggling with some of that legalistic um, failure, come get prayer. Come let us love on you. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I... Uh, come before you just in weakness and trembling and we father i i pray for this group and and i i know that there's some here that have been christians for many years and and i know that there's some who are brand new believers and wherever each one is god would you draw near to them would you speak to their heart would you Invite them to that next level. For those who have not cultivated discipline of regular devotions, God, would you would you open your arms and lead them to that place? And for those who, um, uh, Lord, those who are consistently practicing a quiet time, God, would they see in your word a call to maybe get rid of some of the distractions or some of the crutches that they've leaned on for their devotional time, but maybe just to, to press into a more a more simple and raw experience of you. And, and just for both kinds of people, God, I just pray that they would enter in, open themselves entirely to you, to be changed, to hear from you. And they would come to you with expectancy and that they would recognize that they're, they're not being commanded in. They're not being lashed and whipped. They're being uh, and driven in. They're being, they're being welcomed in by a loving Father who just wants to connect with them. God, would you meet us here in this place? Would you change lives because of what you've said in your